This is the Education Gadfly Show. You could send him with some popcorn uh, into the lobby. Isn't that good, Karen? Uh, <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our very special guest for the week, the Chadwick Bozeman of Education Reform, Dr. Howard Fuller. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be with you, Mike. Welcome, welcome back, Dr. Fuller. And of course, I'm, I'm making a reference to the actor that plays the Black Panther. Have you seen the movie yet? I'm on my way to see it. I'm picking Debbie up in an hour and we're going to see it. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I can't wait to, hey, let me know if you think uh, my kids, uh, it'd be age appropriate for my kids or not. I keep hearing great things about it. But... <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, good. Well, for those of you that don't know, and if you don't, I don't know uh, what rock you've been under, but Dr. Fuller is the Distinguished Professor of Education and the Founder, Director of the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and one of the heroes of the school choice movement uh, forever. Uh, also joining us this week, my regular co-host, Alyssa Schwenk. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm well. Have you seen the movie yet? I have not, though. I did go through the movie theater on Saturday and saw a bunch of activists uh, registering people to vote at the movie, which oh, I thought was super cool. That is super cool and very DC. I heard it was actually happening in theaters all oh, over the oh, country, oh, which is awesome. Okay, okay, yeah, Fair enough. Good, good, good. I like it. Well, excellent. Well, hey, we have a lot to cover in this week's Ed Reform Update, so let's get going. All right. So, Dr. Fuller, you were in a debate recently over at the Century Foundation about school segregation. This is one of those topics that seems hot again. It had gone through a period where it wasn't at the fore of the education policy conversation. It seems to be back uh, towards the top of the list again. Uh, And this has been something you've been asked uh, to speak about. We are curious about your perspective on this. Is this something that education reformers should be paying more attention to? Well, I think education reformers ought to pay attention to everything that could actually make a difference for our children. I think the issue is, and, and the focus of the debate, the way that the question was phrased, was that one of the biggest threats to education today is school segregation. And I was on the side of uh, no on that question. But the way it was formed or the way that the question was asked made it sort of difficult. So what I always have to do when I get into these uh, discussions is to make clear that I have never supported, nor will I ever support, state-sponsored uh, segregation or mm-hmm. the idea that a people should be subordinated because of their race. And so, to me, racial separation or segregation is only one manifestation of the subordination of people in this country because of race. And so I will always oppose that because clearly the tenets of that have to do with the belief that black people and other non-white people are inferior. And so that that is obviously something that I will never support. But that's different than dealing with the question of what is it that we should be focused on today when it comes to the education of particularly low-income non-white people uh, in this country. And the point I'm trying to make is I don't think any option should be taken off the table, but the issue is for poor children, particularly poor children living in some of the urban areas in our city, 
in our cities in this country, what what is what what is it that we should be doing, or what should we be focused on, or or what holds out the best promise for them if the goal is for them to get a quality education? All right, so no, that sounds like exactly the right question. And so then, what is what is the answer? I mean, you've got some people out there who would say, well, the the best hope then are high quality charter schools that are helping low income kids make dramatic progress from year to year. Uh, and even if those charter schools happen to be, you know, all African American or all poor kids, if they're getting great results, then that's what matters. Other people would say, no, no, no. Uh, if we really want to help kids both both on achievement but also preparation for life, uh, it's really important that they be in a racially and socioeconomically integrated school. And in some cases, it's you got to make a choice. It's hard to. Uh, you know, if you want to focus on on integration, you might go in one direction. If you focus on, say, building more high quality charter schools, you go in another direction. Uh, so where, where do you come down? I, I come down on which one works in the particular place that we're in and which one gives us the best chance of the the quickest result, meaning which which one will give us a chance right now today for those kids. Mm-hmm. And and what I would argue is that it's almost like with Richard Carter, you know, I, I always talk about him because he's the, the he was a former, uh, uh, Robert Carter, I'm sorry, he was a former judge, but he also was the attorney who had the responsibility to put the social science literature before the Brown Court, in particular the Kenneth Clark Dow's experiment. Mm-hmm. But all of that that literature is found in footnote 11. And I, I often say a lot of people talk about the Brown decision, but I've never read it. And if you look at footnote 11, that's where all the social science literature is. But in any event, Judge Robert Carter said very clearly that if you ask him, you know, is integrated education the ultimate solution? He, he argued yes. But he said for the present, the focus on integration alone is a luxury that only the black middle class can afford mm-hmm. because they have the means to desert the public schools if they're dissatisfied, they can get remediation if necessary, or get their children into college or some other kind of income-producing enterprise. The urgent need for the black urban poor is the attainment in real-life terms and in settings of virtual total black-white separation, Mm -hmm. at least some of the benefits and protections of the constitutional guarantee of equal educational opportunity that Brown requires. And he says that the only way to ensure that thousands of the black urban poor will have even a remote chance of obtaining the tools that they need to compete in the marketplace for a decent job is to get a quality education. And that the likelihood is that we're going to have to figure out how to do that in schools that will be all black for the foreseeable future. And that's where I stand. It's, it's, I do not oppose people fighting for integration. But if you ask me where would I spend my time and where do I think we would have the best possibility, it would be to build a great charter school or a great traditional school or a great private school in the areas where these children live. And that if you do that, the likelihood is going to be all black or all brown or all poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, what's really struck me about the latest, uh, I think, interest in segregation, and there was an AP article, I think, at the end of last year, is it's not a broad question of segregation versus integration, or which it's a question of segregation of the charter schools and schools of choice, which I think adds another layer of complexity because we are talking about what 
choices families are making for their kids. And we're not necessarily looking at the other options that their families have, which are slightly less segregated when you're looking mm-hmm. at like a school to school basis, as far as I can tell. And I think that's mm-hmm. a much different conversation to have, but that's the conversation that we were having. Right. And and language matters. I mean, what do you think, Dr. Fuller? Is it fair to call it, say, a KIPP school that is all black or all brown to call that school segregated if that's a, a school that the parents have chosen? Well, see, I think, I think again, I agree with you that, that, language does matter and segregation has a certain connotation to it mm-hmm. and what I tried to say in the beginning the connotation that it has that I will always oppose is is a way to subordinate people based on race and you you have the legal separation of people based on race what we're talking about is you have communities where people live and for years they've not had good schools in those communities and now if someone comes in and puts a charter school in that community and it begins to serve those kids educational needs well it's hard for me to understand how you're not going to stand and holler at these people saying you're promoting segregation what were we promoting all of these times when the schools that were located in their communities were not well serving these kids and and the other thing is that a lot of the people and i'm not saying all of the people but many of the people who are, who are shouting at us about all oh, integration integration the question is where do your kids go to school What kind of decisions are you making for your children? And are we prepared to say that if a school that is really educating kids well, that we're going to condemn it because it's all black? When what what were we saying about the traditional schools that were in that community uh, and not serving kids? So, but 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 I say that, and then I, I I will quickly say, though for people who have a strategy for integration that will end up serving kids well, I would never oppose that. The issue is is that the thing that we should be focused on? Is that the only strategy? that we should have for those children. And that's it. it you know, if, if it's both and, uh, then it's great. And you see you see charter schools doing this as well. You see some uh, intentionally diverse charter schools that are getting support. You know, Deborah, your wife has been a big, big supporter of that. And that's great. You know, uh, and where there are opportunities because of the geography of where people live and, and where you can locate schools, absolutely. Uh, but to say that that's got to be the only strategy and that we're going to give up on these high, highly effective schools, some of which are charters or private schools, you know, be, as you say, because uh, the racial demographics don't match what we'd like them to be, uh, we don't, it feels like we don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the other thing that's really interesting, I've said this over and over again, I, I think to, to say that we should have a integrated America, if I can use that term, and what we're going to do is we're not going to do anything about housing policies, we're not going to do anything about economic policies, we're not going to do anything about right. transportation policies, we're not going to do anything about all of that, but what we're going to do is integrate schools. And, and so we're going to put the onus for integration onto schools. And, 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 and that's really ludicrous. And we've learned over 55 plus years uh, that a strategy like that simply does not work in America. Uh, and, and we've also learned a lot about all of the ways that people resist quote, integrating schools and, and, and how these things operate. And we've learned the difference between desegregation and integration, for example, when we're talking about the legal support uh, of, quote, segregation in America. So there's a, there's a lot that we've learned, and it, it just... 
sort of baffles me that people are going to reach back in time and come up with, again, we got to deal with integration as if we've learned nothing over this long period of time mm-hmm. of trying to, to, to deal with this issue. All right. Well, hey, Dr. Fuller, really appreciate you being on the show. Such an important topic. Hope you will come back sometime soon. Hey, I really appreciate the invitation. You all have a great day. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now it is time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We were talking with Dr. Fuller about the Black Panther. He's going to have to let me know if it is age appropriate for my kids. Uh, you know, so want to see it that looks one. so good. I, I have yes. really, I really have not just gone to any superhero movies with you them. Are if you missing don't count, out. I mean, if you know, Star Wars doesn't count as a superhero. Movie, yeah, I feel though right? if you'll, you're, if you're okay with them seeing Star Wars, like nothing in a Marvel good, movie right? is going to okay. be a surprise. Okay. Right. I think so. There are a couple that I think it kind of bad, but for the yeah. most part, I, I give you a list, Mike. Because yeah. I've seen all of them. Uh, uh, <laughs> Leandro start- has, has a little bit of a habit of, of screaming at scary parts and then saying, you know, that he wants to leave the theater very loudly, uh, <laughs> which then creates a problem for his dad who wants to keep watching <laughs> the movie. Right. You could just send him with some popcorn uh, into the lobby. Isn't that good parenting? Uh, <laughs> sure, that's a great idea. <laughs> Kindergarten teacher. Okay, Andrew, what you got for us? We got a new study called Saving the Liberal Arts, Making the Bachelor's Degree a Better Path to Labor Market Success. This is Mark Snyder and Matthew Singleman's study. Did you see this? Out of coming out of AI? I saw the headline, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it was yesterday. They examined whether students graduating with liberal arts degrees are getting a good return on their investment and how they might maximize those degrees. Mm-hmm. They examined data from, I've never heard of this, Burning Glass Technologies. Mm-hmm. So I went to the website. Like, what is this place? It's an analytic software company that is powered, quote, by the world's largest and most sophisticated database of jobs and talent, delivering real-time data and breakthrough planning tools mm-hmm. that inform careers, define academic programs, and shape workforces. In other words, they have 150 million unique job postings that mm. they're grabbing mm. from everywhere. Dating back to 2007, they extract 50,000 on a daily basis, data from 50,000 online job boards, newspapers, and employer websites. Every day, they're oh, like wow. pulling this stuff down. Right. They claim that at minimum, 80 to 90% of job postings are indeed posted online and captured by BG, that's what mm-hmm. we call them. Uh, data are coded to extract granular data from postings about labor market trends and new and emerging skills needed for various jobs. So mm-hmm. what a neat Super cool. thing to do. Yeah. Uh, they're supplemented by data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so it mm-hmm. makes for some really interesting data. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically for this report, job posting data are pulled from the last 12 months for the period of December 2016 through November 2017. Okay. 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 All if you descriptive sense. findings using data from another source, not BG, it gets a little confusing. They find that the median earnings for those in liberal arts and humanities at age 30 is, what do you want to guess? At age 30. Ooh, age 30, liberal arts and humanities. Nationwide. Whoa. 65. About 37,000. Oh. <laughs> which is lower than nearly a dozen other major fields of study. They also find that from 2007 through 16, there's been a 4% decline in the number of bachelor's degrees conferred in the liberal arts and humanities. Hmm. Contrast that to a 55% increase in biology and life sciences, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next, they identify a set of occupations that represent entry-level opportunities for all college graduates. I went to the appendix. I'm like, do they include 
associate's degrees, mm-hmm. and they do, mm-hmm. uh, and less than five years of experience. So that's how they're defining an entry-level opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take out all the people or all the jobs that require an advanced degree or a specialized degree, mm-hmm. and they're left with about 1.4 million unique entry-level job postings over the last year mm-hmm. uh, for which a liberal arts degree holder can qualify. Okay. Okay. Then they, this gets a little complicated, then they group uh, related occupations with similar skills together into 10 career clusters since they say, okay, these provide the greatest opportunity to transfer and build associated skills. Okay. And presumably these are the best employment and advancement potential you can have as a liberal arts major. Mm -hmm. So just clusters in liberal arts. Right. 10 career clusters that they would qualify for. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and they find that relative to the highest proportion of entry-level openings, the top five industries are business administration, mm-hmm. data analysis and data management, human resources, IT and networking, and sales. Okay? Mm-hmm. So these are where you're going to get an entry-level job or in these five, mm-hmm. five industries. Yet when they look at the share of entry-level jobs filled by liberal arts graduates, mm-hmm. this was interesting, 83% of the openings in media and communications are filled by them. Mm-hmm. 80, that makes sense. 83%. That makes sense. Um, the other two industries most likely filled by a liberal arts graduate are in design, mm-hmm. 54%, mm-hmm. and marketing and PR, 50%. Mm-hmm. I feel well represented <laughs> but with my communications <laughs> degree over here. Yeah, these are also the industries found to have the least projected amount of employment growth, according to BLS. Less well represented. So the analysts find that industries like business administration, data analysis, data management, and programming and software development have these higher expected projected mm-hmm. growth. But smaller shares are filled by liberal arts graduates. Okay, okay. Woo. So how can liberal arts graduates Finally, be better prepared? Finally, this is the last part. This report is so cool, but it's just so much there in a little amount of time. I'm on four minutes now. You're on like six. six. All right. They identify workers by liberal. This is kind of cool. Uh, they, they have a liberal arts degree. They start in one cluster. They calculate the percentage who end up in another cluster five years later and their likelihood of doing so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you're moving around clusters. And they find that those clusters open to liberal arts grads can be comparable to those attained by STEM grads, mm-hmm. okay? Um, but you just gotta you gotta know what cluster you're moving into, okay? Right. So, for example, the average STEM graduate has an expected five year salary. I'll, I'll give you another opportunity to guess. Five year, wow. you're a STEM graduate. Clearly, I botched this last sixty thousand dollars, seventy seven, about seventy seven. Huh, okay, which is similar to what a marketing and PR grad at five years can also get. And they comprise 50% of liberal arts grads. Did we get all that? No. Um, I didn't take much math. I was a so liberal arts I think major. the bottom line is, and then they do this other page where they actually give you a pathway if you're a liberal arts graduate, what clusters you should move to in order to maximize and what And then what, what, what skills you might want to and build. And what skills, like, bingo, okay. Mike. Oh, okay. Then they've got some skills that you might need to move into these clusters. So the bottom line, I think, whew, I'm finally there, is that liberal arts degrees holders like, holder like anybody else. You can maximize your job prospects if you have the right combination of skills. <sighs> so I, what, what I love at the end of the day is this is basically saying to these liberal arts graduates, okay, snowflakes, <laughs> You dreamed about writing for the New York Times or doing design for some New York uh, publication yeah. or Silicon Valley, whatever. Uh, but what you're really going to get 
a job in is sales or business administration. So suck it up and get some skills that might get you a job and out of your parents' basement. That's right. And and let's, but, but by looking at these, like I just thought it was a neat methodology, right? Like looking at resumes and all these Mm -hmm. and being able to classify Mm -hmm. them and then being able to group them together. Like, I don't, I was just fascinated by the way Mm -hmm. they went about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're able to tell us some really cool, interesting things. So you can see in a cluster, okay, if you get these types of skills, Mm -hmm. you know, you're much more likely to be able to move into this related cluster right uh and you can you know we know how people like you see a resume sometimes right and it's like an anthropology major but they've you know saved five million dollars at some sales job they had and you're like well okay you know i mean you begin to say all right i have no idea what anthropology has to do with that but you made it work and so there are ways that liberal arts majors can make these things work if they have these you know it would be interesting to figure out if we could match the job openings to what kids in career and technical education in those regions are doing <laughs> we may have a study in the works on that, but it's interesting to think that this could be another source of data to yeah. look at, uh, to look at those job openings yeah, and like, get a, you know, get a sense for what, uh, you know, what, what, what is hot in a given place. Mm-hmm. And do we have a way to steer kids in that direction? Right. Like looking at like regional resumes and some yeah. big city. But it, I'm sure it this, does yeah. kind of sound though, that kids are beginning to respond to those labor market demands. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you said that, people who are majoring in liberal arts went down by 4%. And that might be, I think, some reclassification. Like I know when I was in school, a lot of newer majors were starting Mm -hmm. um, that were kind of more geared toward interdisciplinary work or STEM-focused work. So like it does sound like kids are beginning to respond and higher ed is too. And they make the point of, you know, our majors just aren't what they used to be. Like we really need to be thinking more about like what are the different skills that Mm -hmm. you need for Mm -hmm. a different area. And the CTE folks say that too. Like, you know, when they think about clusters, they think about a group of related jobs, not Mm -hmm. one job. Um, So it's the same idea here. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, what, 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 I mean, teachers too do this well, right? I found that when teachers go and they change jobs, like they know how to present they know how to write they know mm-hmm. how to communicate and those are really marketable skills so mm-hmm. um anyway I, I was encouraged reading the report that's mm-hmm. interesting good stuff we love it and from uh, mark schneider and company who we once used to call stat stud when he yes. when he ran ncs <laughs> uh, now right. we're gonna have to call him research stud i guess uh once he runs ies if he ever gets confirmed when is he gonna be there oh, it's Woo. taking a long time for all of them this take it, it, it it's oh, a process man. Man. <laughs> but process. yet he's still churning out work and yes. yeah very impressive all right great thank you amber that is all the time we've got for this week until next week i'm Alyssa schwing and i'm mike petrilli the thomas b fordham institute signing off the education gadfly show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information visit us online at edexcellence.net